Hello, and welcome to the Sea Stalking Clearly podcast. I'm Suki Barker, CEO of Susie Lumpley Trust, and I'll be your host for today's episode. This podcast has been recorded in recognition of National Stalking Awareness Week, which takes place in April each year, to raise awareness of stalking and the stories behind the statistics. Stalking is a devastating crime. It is a pattern of repeated, unwanted behaviour which is underpinned by a fixation and obsession. Its impact on victims can be substantial, both psychological, social and physical. Sadly, we know that two women a week are killed by a current or former partner in England and Wales alone. And looking across the broader violence against women and girls sector, stalking has been found to be present in 94% of femicides. Today we are going to be discussing the learnings that have come from these cases where sadly the worst has happened and how this information can help us recognise risk and the role of stalking in order to allow us to better respond in the future. And I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. Firstly, I'm joined by Frank Mullane, CEO and founder of the charity Advocacy After Fatal Domestic Abuse, AFTA, and he's also a member of the government's Victims Advisory Panel. And joining him is Dr. Jane Monckton-Smith, forensic criminologist specialising in homicide, coercive control and stalking. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. Hello. Thank you. Jane, Frank, we find ourselves in an, in an unprecedented environment at this time, as most of the globe is under lockdown owing to the spread of COVID-19. And we've recently seen trends across the globe which suggest an increase in, in domestic abuse. We know from research that there is a clear intersectionality between domestic abuse and stalking. Our research shows that approximately 50% of the calls to the National Stalking Helpline involve stalking by an ex-partner. And these relationships were characterised by patterns of domestic abuse um, and, and coercive control. I really wanted to just take an opportunity to gauge some of your thoughts on, on how you think this particular environment um, might be impacting uh, victims of stalking. Um, I think that the, the lockdown that we're all experiencing at the moment is particularly uh, distressing and even dangerous for victims of stalking. So victims of stalking who are in an intimate relationship or have been in an intimate relationship with their stalker may find themselves trapped with that person. Um, and people who don't know their stalker or the stalker um, doesn't live with them, there's an environment where the, perhaps there's less visibility for phys physical stalking and more opportunities for cyber stalking so that what, whatever type of stalking victim you are, this is an environment that is not going to make it any better and we, we should be concerned. Well, I think that... Um... First of all, we might, we might speculate that there may be less immediate help available for persons requesting that help, given that the emergency services and other services are being stretched, not only stretched, but being required to work in different ways. I also think there's a, um, a risk that contact with persons who are self-isolating becomes normalised, such that a person who's not really welcome to make contact and knows that they're not, may try to make contact on the back of, oh, well, it's now socially acceptable in society, we're supposed to be helping people. So I think there could be that. And remember these people that are suffering from fixation and obsession uh, are looking for any angle maybe to 
make that sort of contact. I also think, and I don't know the answer to this question, but I think it could invite us to consider that victims might need to adjust the strategy that they use to stay safe in the light of these kind of different dynamics. I think that's a really valid point. And, and I, I, um, I think what I'd really like to reiterate from um, from the Susie Lamptey Trust and the National Stalking Helpline perspective is that um, frontline services are still open and we are running our services remotely and we are here to support those victims who are struggling and may be struggling um, to access the support that they need. Um, and we have been reassured that that support um, is still available to them and they should feel reassured um, that they, they can, um, for example, contact the police. So if if there is anyone out there who who finds themselves in this in this um, situation, please do um, reach out, contact those frontline services, contact the National Stalking Helpline. Yeah, um, on a slightly different angle at the moment, I think there's something that we we really need to remember is that um, especially those victims who may be living with somebody they're frightened of, um, they have less opportunities for contact now fewer opportunities if you like to speak or to raise an alarm or just to talk. So I would say that community now is more important than it's ever been. And the professional curiosity of all our professionals is more important than it's ever been. When you get that small window of opportunity to speak to somebody who may be frightened or or concerned, you have to have all of all of your psychological tools working to make sure that you pick up on any signals at all that that person might need help and especially people who might be poorly with uh, with the virus who would have even even less opportunity maybe so even if you're you know you're working in a shop and somebody at the till they just don't look right you know our whole communities now have to have all of their antenna working so that we, in those few opportunities for contact that we've got in this unprecedented time, that we actually look and listen and anything that, that concerns us, we maybe act on. I, I think it's important to remember as well that victims are already more stressed at this time. Um, just... N- for what's going on on in their environment and you know this unprecedented time so they're already stressed and perpetrators and stalkers will know that and they possibly by doing less can have more of an impact so where they do actually find windows of opportunity I think they must know that they they are possibly having much more impact than they ordinarily would and i and i think um as neighbors communities and professionals that we have to remember as well that people are very isolated at the moment and stalking is a behavior that isolates people not necessarily um before this uh, physically but psychologically it isolates you and you know you're you're in this constant state of 24/7 concern and worry and you put this extra concern in and we've got a situation where we really really need to be taking care of victims and looking out for them and we talk about the 
the stalking helpline, some people are going to have very restricted access to being able now even to uh, to call a helpline. And sometimes that, that call might be, or to the police or, or to anybody, might be 10 seconds long. We've really got to listen. Absolutely. And um, I think there was some great advice that's being put out by the sector at the moment, utilising things like the, the 5-5 calls, uh, the silent calls to the police. If you aren't able to actually make the call, what, what is it that you could do to raise the, the alert um, covertly? Um, and, and, and fully support what you're saying there, there Jane, we, we do absolutely need professionals um, to be more alert than ever. Um, are already vulnerable victims are going to be far more 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 vulnerable um, and as you say uh, isolated this is so unusual because there's a dynamic acting against intervention so i agree with jane about not just professionals but community being really important but there's this there's this physical dynamic which is um uh stopping people from physically intervening because they don't want to spread the virus or get it and it, I, I, it's just a a kind of a an impediment to us on that way and that's what i mean by thinking creatively we've got to think um beyond the normal conventional responses now because some of those are inhibited by government advice uh, by you know, legislation and by medical advice so we really we need to just go beyond what what we're doing and, and come up with something you know uh, new and innovative that that just breaks it because these people are so vulnerable at the moment yeah well it as you know something else we have to to think about is what is what is it we're protecting victims from so there there will be different innovations to reduce fear there will be different innovations to try and you know stop a stalker or or get in their path or disrupt them you know we we have to be we have to think very strategically about what it is we're trying to achieve and not just you know, just say oh this is a victim of stalking this is what we can do we have to know what we're trying to achieve and make sure it is a, achievable in a very small window of time, possibly. Thank you both for those fantastic insights. I certainly think there's a lot more for us to be thinking about as we as we proceed through these unprecedented times. So today we're going to be discussing the learnings that have uh, sadly come from, from the numerous um, cases of stalking that we see occurring across the UK every every year, um, and and sadly where where the worst um, has happened, um, and and really look at how how this information can help us recognise risk and the role of stalking and, and how we can better respond um, in the future. So um, I I wanted to begin Frank exploring some of some of um, the experiences of AFTER. So your organisation AFTER um, has worked tirelessly to ensure that whenever a domestic homicide occurs it's a legal requirement that a full review is carried out by by agencies involved and to ensure that families form a key part of that review. In your experience of being involved in in those sadly many DHRs could you tell us how prevalent stalking behaviours are um, within the cases you've reviewed? Yes I've I've reviewed about around at least 750 domestic homicide reviews for the Home Office. I would say if, um, let's just say for argument's sake, uh, half to two thirds of those are intimate partner 
homicides. I, I don't think I'll be miles out in saying that. In my view, uh, wherever there is a significant period of time between um, separation and homicide, that you will see some form of stalking. Uh, it, it's quite difficult to think of reviews where that wouldn't have happened. Because I, I, I'm drawn to Jane's homicide timeline because it fills that gap, if you like, for me, between the separation and the homicide. It's not as if somebody goes away and then comes back three months later and jumps in at stage eight and, and, and commits a homicide. There's a whole series of things happening uh, between that separation and the homicide, uh, you know, escalation and planning. Um, and I think we see that in the majority, of the, the vast majority of domestic homicide reviews. In my own family's case, at that stage, of course, uh, I was ignorant of this sector and I did not understand uh, stalking as a part of my sister's journey. But looking back on it with the knowledge I have now and the memory of what he was doing, he stalked her intensively between separation and murder, but also he stalked her within the marriage, you know, through tracking and really close control. I think what's really striking is the prevalence of stalking in domestic homicide. It's major, absolutely major. Thank you, Frank. I, I think what's always interesting from from our experience is, is as you've said, I think the behaviours are often quite obvious, but the word or the language isn't used. And I think we still see that quite commonly in the press and the media and 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 what people are actually talking about is is those is those um are those stalking behaviors the loitering the following etc um but not quite making that connection um do you think that it's problematic that that language isn't used yes i do because uh, otherwise there's a risk that people can artificially um distinguish between uh, stalking and domestic abuse and domestic homicide and coercive control um, without understanding that they are so interlinked and some would say and I, I think including Dr Jane Monkton Smith that stalking is in itself you know coercive control and, and a key part of coercive control. Thank you Frank and so Jane you produced an eight-stage model that identifies sort of multiple intervention points or warning signs to, to homicide. The first three stages in your model uh, really focus on the on the relationship um, in stage one, you look at the history. Um, in in stage two, you look at the the early stages of the relationship, and then the intensity of the relationship in in stage three, and the establishment of that sort of controlling and abusive patterns of behaviour. Could you could you tell us a bit about um, how this highlights the significant risk that stalking poses um, in the potential journey, particularly looking at these sort of early stages? Yeah, I think um, when we talk about stalking, one of the biggest problems we have is that the way that the law talks about stalking and, and it talks about stalking as only happening after a relationship has ended. Um, but when I did my research um, with Susie Lamplew Trust, actually, we had a broader uh, kind of definition, if you like, for stalking, which is monitoring and, and tracking, you know, all of those things that we, in a common sense way, think about when we think of stalking. So I'm going to talk about stalking from that perspective when I, when I talk about the early stages. So in that first stage, 
one of the key risk markers is that this person has a history of stalking or controlling people. So that means that stalking right at the very beginning is one of our biggest risk markers because this is a pattern and even you know when when that pattern is repeated with one victim chances are it will be repeated over many victims. So it's incredibly important. And in that second stage where we're talking about a very um maybe intense and over-invested kind of interest in somebody that you've just met. Again, it's that fixated kind of mindset, isn't it, that we see in stalkers. So again, what you might um, think about as, oh, this person is really interested in me, they're paying me so much attention, doesn't feel as creepy or concerning as it might do later on and i and i think it's it's letting people recognize that these behaviors generally speaking are concerning and they are stalking because there's all that monitoring and possession and tracking in in the stage three is is really when in most cases it's where a relationship starts but when we're talking about, if we talk about stalking more generally and stalkers more generally, the relationship is sometimes in their head. So it's not just about always a relationship has started, although in many cases that is what happens. But in some cases, um, in the case of uh, Claire Bernal, you know, back in 2005, um, she didn't really have a proper relationship with her stalker, but in his head, she did. So we've always got to be looking at the motivations of the person. And if they are intense and persistent and it's repeated and they are watching and tracking and monitoring, that is always, even in those early stages, going to be a problem. You touched on this a little bit already but there are stalking cases where the relationship is in fact unknown to the to the victim um, and and the offender as you said thinks there is there is a relationship or, or they perceive a relationship can you talk about any examples where the where the, where, where the two individuals didn't meet um, and where the victim wasn't aware of the uh, of the relationship how does that sort of correlate in relation to this early stage okay where the where the victim has no idea who their stalker is and that stalker is in fact keeping themselves completely hidden that can be one of the most dangerous categories of stalking what we call a predatory stalker and that can be uh, incredibly frightening but they will be going through all of the same behaviors but much more covertly and sometimes it may be um, a feeling in the victim that something's not quite right and a lot of the time and I've seen it happen so many times a victim will say I don't know I'm, I'm being paranoid trust your instincts instincts are there to keep us safe and it doesn't matter maybe you're wrong but if your instincts are telling you that something's not right maybe it isn't and maybe you should act on that so even in those early stages you might feel 
that monitoring, that tracking, that feeling of being watched, trust, trust yourself. And if you know the person who's doing it and it doesn't feel right, trust yourself. And Jane, you, you talk about then this moving into stage four, which is around triggers um, and triggering circumstances. Could you just tell us a little bit more about what, what this is? Well, in this particular model, what we found was when risk escalates, it doesn't escalate for no reason. There is always a reason. And in the vast majority of cases, that reason will be that the control of the stalker or the the controlling person is being challenged or threatened in some way. Most of the time, most of the time, that is because there is a separation looming or a perceived separation looming. And, you know, if we start to think in a very sophisticated way about a separation, um, it's not always going to be necessarily, I'm leaving you, I want a divorce. It could be that this separation is just a challenge to that person being able to have contact with the person they're, they're fixated with. And I would just like to say that in this particular strange time that we're in, um, the lockdown is in fact a stage four trigger. Thinking about this particular stage, who who might be well placed to notice um, these these triggering circumstances? Thinking about sort of friends, family, other professionals, because this sounds like it's quite a critical point, as you say, where we're you know the potentially a separation. Um, looming and this threatens the partner's um, control um, what 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 particular agencies should be attuned to what specific thing I think there are a number of agencies who could possibly spot the danger signs that have been raised by this lockdown so the lockdown has changed everything for the stalker for the controlling person the, the perpetrator if you like they have uh, the lockdown has taken away their freedom they won't like that at all it has also um, raised their own anxiety levels stress levels and another thing it does in relationships is the victim is now under 24 seven monitoring so that monitoring and tracking that might have been done from a distance or may have been intermittent is now absolutely constant and that person um, who's doing that monitoring is going to have more opportunities to be irritated or annoyed so it's a very very dangerous situation for people who are living together Um, I think another very big challenge that will raise the risk here is especially if the victim becomes ill and they can't respond to the control they can't center the 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 perpetrator and they might need looking after themselves that is going to be a real hot spot Um, but but also we've got opportunities here with our health professionals and with our criminal justice professionals to be able to, like I said, have their antenna on full and be looking out for signs and signals. But also the people on the front line now who are actually having that contact may well be shop assistants, 
cashiers. You know, they are the people. We're standing in queues now as well, although two metres apart. So again, I say communities, somebody might reach out with just the way they look at you or perhaps they're crying or perhaps they're bruised, something. You know, we all need to be thinking that there are two, two things that are raising our stress levels at the moment and raising the danger for us. One is our health because of this virus and two is victims of abuse. We are likely to see a massive spike. Thank, thank you, Jane. And Frank, it's a similar, it's a similar question to you. From your experience uh, of working through those multiple DHRs where stalking has been present, this particular stage, um, this this trigger, um, triggering circumstances phase, are there any agencies that you believe are are, are crucial? Um, to recognising the risk in this particular phase. And are there any particular learnings that you would want to share? Well, I think that all of the agencies uh, are relevant here. But on your point about the the trigger, um, agencies um, are already aware of potential triggers because they have lots of data and information about the relationship at that stage. If the person has reported the abuse, you know, during stage Uh, two or three they may have already contacted the agencies so the agencies will have a record they can predict when certain triggers are so if they don't get contacted by that victim they could say we haven't heard from this victim in a while something significant has happened because we know there's been a trigger it could be a divorce it could be a separation it could be child contact or what have you so i think there are opportunities for all agencies to examine records Professor Betsy Stanko, it must be eight or ten years ago now, wrote a paper in which she was advising police that they already have lots of intelligence and information around victims and perpetrators and and relationships in which a perpetrator is um, committing domestic abuse against a victim, including stalking. They already have lots of information which can enable them to make reasonable predictions about the future. What she was stating was that the police were not data mining that, they were not analysing that, there were not resources given over to the analysis of relationships so that the police could make some predictions about likelihoods in the future. If they were to do that, that would be a kind of a proactive way that um, that the agencies that we hope are there to protect us uh, could try and prevent much domestic abuse, serious domestic abuse, and even domestic homicide. I think it, it it's that stage four thing, isn't it? We are already in a situation where all perpetrators have been pushed into stage four. Police should think about that. So on the National Stalking Helpline, we we also run an an attached advocacy service and we often see an increase in persistence when we have a a high risk case. And a challenge for us is convincing often criminal justice agencies that an increase in persistence is as relevant to demonstrating risk as an increase in the severity of the sorts of behaviours you might be seeing. Um, So in stage five, Jane, you talk about escalation. 
Can you outline some of the behaviours a perpetrator might display as they are trying to regain control of their victim and the sort of consequent risks a victim may face um, at this point? And is this, is this a critical point when stalking behaviours start to emerge? At stage five, which is uh, the escalation stage, this is the stage where legally recognised stalking generally starts. This is the point where they have been pushed and now they're trying to claw back control or stop whatever challenge it is from from happening. Uh, So stage five is absolutely crucial. If as a professional, you know there has been a separation or a big challenge and then the stalking starts, you are in stage five. You don't even need to look back over over what's happened and check. Now, the we can measure escalation in many ways and I think you're absolutely right when, when you say we shouldn't just be looking at the severity of these stalking actions. So there are a couple of things we can look at. So time investment is one of the crucial aspects here that we don't utilise very much when measuring how dangerous somebody is. So how much time are they dedicating to their stalking, to their monitoring, to their tracking every single day? So if we look at, for example, Alice Ruggles, um, who was who was murdered by her stalker in 2016, he left a bunch of flowers on her doorstep, but it took him about three hours to get to the house to leave those flowers and three hours back. So we're talking about a time investment of six hours just to leave a bunch of flowers. So I think that um, is a good example of you know, rereading a situation and measuring the time investment. Persistence, again, is another very important one. And it's not, um, it's not always just about the persistence escalating, but what, what and how are they persisting? You know, if somebody, if a police officer, for example, says to a stalker, you must stop, and they don't, that's a very significant persistence. And if a court has said, you must stop, and they continue, that's an even more significant persistence. So we, we have to look at not only persistence over time, but what are they saying, I'm not gonna stop just because of that. I don't care what the consequences are for me of this behaviour, then you've got somebody who you know is is quite dangerous. One thing, right, stalkers are like gamblers. So everything for them is they're they're measuring their chances of getting a hit, of getting some success. And, you know, if they phone up somebody a hundred times and on the hundredth time the person answers and screams down the phone, it's a hit for them. And you've just told them what the odds are. So you must never let them think that the odds are ever, ever going to be in their favour. And you must never let them create an opportunity to be face to face with their victim. So thinking about this period, the the, the escalation period, um, for those agencies that are working on the front line, so just thinking about the criminal justice services or even health agencies, is there any sort of critical pieces of advice you might give them? in terms of managing in this period when they're seeing triggers or escalations becoming apparent? 
Yes, I think one of the opportunities here is is more use of disruption tactics, more use of intrusive tactics around, around the perpetrator. In this period of time, remember, you know, Jane would say these stages are not always distinct happening in in um, consecutive moments. There's a, a, a certain degree of en- enmeshment of these stages. Uh, so there'll be um, this change in thinking, this decision that might be made to kill or launch a serious attack, which in itself will involve lots of planning. So, for example, um, people may begin to leave a trail, which evidences that they may begin to settle affairs if for example they're planning to take their own life at the same time as as commit murder and they may be withdrawing cash in in uh, larger amounts than usual now at the same time jane was saying that um after the we're now at the stage of a trigger with all perpetrators it's also given opportunities for police because the government has just given them more powers now so if the police were to be more intrusive and uh uh, stopping people and looking their cars and don't let's not forget they actually know some of these people because they've got information on these relationships they know that they may well know there's been a trigger if they assess go back and study this information do what professor betsy stanko suggested they should do they may be able to get into these people's lives and begin to see that they are arranging their affairs they are assembling material to launch an attack and, you know, this sounds incredible, but I mean, the evidence bears it out. And this is really where we see the underutilisation of the legislation, because as you said, there are police powers there that uh, allow them to, to, to go in and obtain that, that evidence and, and, start, and start collecting and, and, and um, formulating that, that picture. Um, so, so, Jane, just thinking about those risks that you've spoken about in this particular phase, are there any um, piece of advice that you would give? that they should be looking for in this particular phase? Well, I think any any escalation shows you straight away that there is an escalation in risk to the victim. Frank's talked then about um, looking for things that mean we've gone beyond escalation and they've actually started thinking they're going to act on, on some of these feelings they have. And, you know, we can we can see escalation and we can see planning in people's cyber activity you you would be surprised the amount of times that people will google things that are going on in their heads you know so it it might be that they will put in a google search how to commit the perfect murder or what how how to punch someone without showing any marks you know these these things people's computers are almost like melded into them these days and we can find out so much about what people are thinking and I think it would be really good if as a matter of course where we are concerned that there is an escalation that police are looking at phone activity and computer activity because there's so much a part of us now aren't there you there will be so many clues potentially in there mm-hmm. We are always surprised at the difference between what victims report to us on the helpline and what police then find is happening in the, at the back of that when they do do that investigation um, look, and look at computers, look at look at phones. It unearths um, such a, a, a mountain of evidence. Um, so what, what the victim's actually telling you is that peak, isn't it? It's the tip of the mountain. There's just so much more happening beneath that, they, that often they can't see themselves and and that's why it's so uh, so important 
And and maybe, you know, even looking at phone activity, for example, look at somebody's screen time and the kinds of thing, places they've been visiting. And then you can get maybe something like your time investment and your persistence and the, even the repertoire of what they're doing. How many different ways are they following this person? Are they monitoring this person? It's, you know, it's such an important thing. And I don't think that in those first calls the police are necessarily doing that they're only doing it maybe later on when in the escalation stage a lot of your your evidence might actually be there yes and um when i was speaking about the telecoms firms earlier um there are cases where persons who've gone on to commit domestic homicide have visited sites like jane said there's one called or was one called how to murder someone.com and it's one that my brother-in-law visited, which I found on his work computer afterwards. Now, how difficult is it for a telecoms company to gather the IP addresses of persons who visited that site last week and give them to police, who then compare them to their records on individuals and they think, wow, now we're seeing escalation. How difficult can that be? And in this stage where the government is giving itself quite rightly more powers um, why can they not be made to work with telecoms companies to expect more from those telecoms companies i mean anybody nobody visiting a site how to murder someone.com is doing it for legitimate leisure purposes i can only think of two purposes one someone who wants to commit murder or someone who fears they're about to be murdered who's trying to find out how they might do it I can't think of anybody of normal mental health that would be visiting a site like that for recreational purposes. Thank you, Frank. And and this, I think, Jane, you've highlighted moves into stage six and seven in, in terms of that, that change in thinking and, and planning. Sometimes these stages, especially where you've got somebody who's got very poor impulse control and somebody who's obsessed may well have poor impulse control, um, may go through these stages very, very quickly, um, you know, within 12 hours even. So if you've all, you're already in stage four, you've got this the definite challenge to this to this person. And that will bring some escalation. Um, so you're already around stage four and five. So the escalation then could be quite quick if the challenge uh, becomes really, really difficult for that person because they're not very good at being told what to do. They like to be in control. They like to be calling the shots. They don't want people standing in their way. So I think especially where we can see escalation, we have to recognise that in some people, that escalation can be very fast through those stages. But another thing, we, you know, that we, we do need to remember, and, it's in, and I think it's the most positive thing that has come out of this research, you can stop somebody at every single stage, even stage eight. I have seen people attempting to really hurt somebody and they have been stopped. So, I mean, that's the really positive thing. And when Frank talks about let's be innovative, let's be imaginative, look at the stages and, and think about um, being very specific about what kind of innovation would work at that particular stage 
and it and it does help us focus on maybe some of the some of the potential answers. I think one of the challenges that that we find, particularly sort of perhaps when perpetrators have a change in in thinking or their or their planning might changes, it feels that that behaviour is quite hidden, and how how our authorities are alert to that and that and that risk that we're now in that phase and. And victims will often say to us, um, it's changed or the behaviours have changed or I'm not hearing the same things. And that's worse. There's no contact now because now I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what what he might do. Um, are there are there any signs that victim could be alert to or that professionals could be more cognizant of or, or asking the right questions when, when we're in those sort of latter stages? There's a few things to say here. Stage six is very, very difficult. Unless you really know what you're talking about, it can be very difficult to see. The person best placed to see stage six is in fact the victim because they will notice subtle changes that have happened that maybe make them feel uncomfortable. They may say things like, I don't know what's happened, but something's changed or it's more menacing and I can't actually tell you why, that probably means that the person's behaviour has changed, so something has changed in their thinking. In a lot of the stalking research, this stage, stage six, uh, is called last chance thinking. So that would be, you know, any kind of sign that this person is moving towards, right, I'm going to resolve this now. It's gone on for long enough. I'm going to resolve the issue. So some people will decide that they're going to resolve the issue through killing somebody or or really hurting them. And that's a real problem for, for us and for the victims. So last chance it's quite a good way of, of putting it, really, isn't it? Um, so things, you know, like resolving, like I think it was mentioned earlier, getting your papers together, going and saying goodbyes, going and maybe apologising to people for things that you've done in the past. I know that in one case I was talking to somebody about, he went and rehomed his dog. So it's that... Things are changing, things are coming to an end, and I am preparing for that end. And that might be a change in behaviour. It might be suddenly they become a lot calmer. That's very common because they've made a decision, they're happy with the decision, they may have a plan for going forward. For those people who act very quickly and impulsively, they may get to a stage where it actually escalates. You know, because they're in that in that um, kind of uh, mindset where things are not calming. They're not giving themselves time to think. So stage six is about changes, you know. So more escalation or perhaps uh, something, you know, somebody disappears or that escalation just goes away. And, and Suki, when we talk about these behaviours being hidden, I think that they might be hidden to the victim sometimes but they're not hidden to communications agencies they're not hidden to the banks they're not hidden to the police so if there is a if there is a a data mining of that person's activities it may begin to reveal some of the things that jane just said large movements of cash closing of accounts etc visiting 
uh, murder websites. And is and and Frank, I, that that last chance thinking that Jane was talking about, are you seeing that in in DHRs? Is that pattern very clearly coming across? Yes, I, I am seeing that. I'm seeing that ultimatums are given to victims, uh, and that's what I think Jane is talking about. And when that ultimatum is not met to the satisfaction of the perpetrator, then the perpetrator has no other ammunition left uh, to regain the control and they don't envisage a life um, in which they can go on without that person. So the only thing that they have left is to destroy that person. And you touched on this already a bit, Frank, around, you know, there is an opportunity actually for professionals. This isn't hidden from from them to 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 unearth uh, some of what's happening here, some of those behaviours. Is there any other advice that you would give to, to professionals to in this particular stage um, to ensure that they're, they're looking for the, for the right thing? I go back to the status of domestic violence and stalking as crimes. It's not high enough. It doesn't attract sufficient resources. If it had sufficient resources, then we could expect more of what Betsy Stanko advised, that we would have a proactive, intrusive examination of data and information that agencies already hold, and then a utilisation of the capabilities that they hold to become more intrusive in the lives of persons who are actually breaking the law. There is often There are often restraining orders about these people that they're not supposed to be contacting them. So we know that they are breaking agreements that the state has asked them to keep. So there are all sorts of opportunities, but it requires resources. It requires the will of the chief constables, of the heads of departments to say, we are putting resources into this. And instead of trying to rationalize and make ourselves more efficient, we are going to go to the providers of resources and say, we need more resources. This is a massive crime. It is absolutely an infliction on society. Its prevalence permeates right through society, wrecks and ruins lives, not only of the people suffering the direct stalking and abuse, but the families and loved ones around them. It requires a huge uplift in status so that we get the state recognising its power to destroy societies and communities and to put resources into preventing that. I'd, I'd like to um, add to that point. Um, I think it's about recognising what is dangerous and we don't always give some behaviours enough importance. So we tend to look for things like overt threats and violence and maybe somebody, you know, menacingly following someone. What we really need to be looking at is, is things that we talked about earlier, things like persistence. Is there going to be anything that is going to stop this person? What is the motivation behind what they're doing? So if they do snap off the windscreen wipers of your car that's not simply criminal damage what's the motivation behind that if they're moving the furniture around in somebody's garden or they're constantly calling them what is the motivation it's not about how dangerous it looks for an imminent threat it's what's at the end what is their end game why are they doing this 
Because actually, it, it, it is in this stage, really. Um, I, I know, Jane, you said that, you know, you, you we can intervene at, at any stage, but obviously, we don't want to get to a homicide stage, which is the last, the last, the last phase. And um, this is a real opportunity for pro- pro- professionals, if there hasn't been that engagement, to really um, understand those those risks. And I think it's just so telling, um, building on the point that, that that Frank spoke about, that we've the sentencing we're seeing when we are seeing those cases being identified is so low, so woefully low. On average, uh, less than a year sentence for stalking cases. Um, you know, we may have a maximum of 10 year sentencing for stalking now, but we're not seeing anything reaching reaching those figures. So there is something there that's definitely breaking down across the criminal justice system. Um, and, and, and think, um, you know, we've spoken a bit about identification about the police. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add in terms of just professionals across the criminal justice system um, in, in this particular phase? Um, where they perhaps just aren't cognizant to the risk? I think that we do not give situations where people know each other enough um, gravity. We do not necessarily see them as dangerous, and they are, in fact, the most dangerous. It is a rejected stalker, really, who's the most likely to seriously hurt someone, and we still haven't learned that lesson and you know professor evan stark who wrote the book on coercive control he said if you want to get rid of it raise the status of it which goes back to what frank said we just don't we see it as two people arguing if only they stop wasting our time this would go away that is not what it is can i share with you um in my sister and nephew's murders we found letters in the perpetrator's car afterwards which revealed that he had planned those mur- uh, the murder of my sister five weeks before he actually did it. So my question would be, in my mind, because he had a full murder kit in the boot of his car, was it in that car for five weeks? Because he had to have had it available five weeks before. Or was it in the house and he transferred it to the boot and then decided this was the wrong night suddenly. So were there five weeks of opportunities, 35 days of opportunities for a police force that had all the intelligence on him to get intrusive, stop his car, look in the boot, absolute full letter of confessions, everything in there, the whole murder kit. How long was it in the boot of the car? And let's Take that example and, and think about all of the cases across England and Wales, Scotland, wherever. How many opportunities are there for us to get intrusive to find out what people are carrying about their person for a great deal of time? Do you think we are, we are learning from our mistakes? I think this year, and certainly with the Domestic Abuse Commissioner coming on board, and it will be part of her responsibilities and her interests, I must say, is that we want to um, accelerate and, and embed and deepen the learning from domestic homicide reviews. I think we've spent some time trying to improve the process. Now we need to uh, make sure that the learning happens. So, for example, when I'm assessing reviews, I often see sections called 
lessons learned. And I wish instead they were called lessons identified. Because I don't think lessons are learned until we've had um, an injection of resource repeated over time, embedded, and you know, and it's we've had leaders walking the talk and we can see a change in behaviors. It's not enough to say because we've identified lessons they've been learned. There has to be a series of actions which goes from identifying to learning. And that's certainly going to be one of the activities for the organization I run going forward this year is to try and accelerate and embed that learning. I think that if we... Two cases I, I, I talk about, uh, Claire Bernal in 2005 and Alice Ruggles in 2016. The similarities in those cases were quite shocking. So looking at that, you might think we haven't learned any lessons. I think during that time we have learned a lot about stalking and we have learned a lot about the characteristics and what is dangerous and what is it, what isn't. But I think what we are still lacking is really strong leadership at the top of these organisations to say this is a priority for us. This is something that we need to tackle and our staff, whoever they may be, police officers, probation officers, um, midwives, we will give status to those people who are able to deal with these problems. And I really do think that when we get proper leadership, and that does mean resources and time, but when we do not get, for example, the same kind of messages coming out of our leaders for stalking and domestic abuse homicides that we do for acts of terrorism. And yet there are far more deaths and it's far more of a public health issue. So for me, to get those lessons properly embedded, we need much stronger leadership. That's actually everything that we have time for today. We could probably go on for some some hours. I'd really like to thank both Frank and Jane for joining me today and for such a interesting discussion. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. If any of our listeners have any questions based on what has been discussed today or you believe you may be experiencing stalking, then please get in touch through the Susie Lamplu Trust website, which is susielamplu.org, or contact us on the National Stalking Helpline which is 0808-802-0300. If you'd like any further details on the services offered by AFTER, you can contact them through their website on www.after.org.uk. And if you'd like any further details on the training offered by Jane on the homicide timeline, there's some further information available on the Gloucestershire University website. Thank you all for listening again and we hope you'll check in for our next episode of Sea Stalking Clearly where we'll be discussing cyber stalking and the impact on victims. All the episodes will also be made available through the website. Thank you again.